Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. This morning is the first Sunday of Lent in the Christian year. How many of us are familiar with Lent? Some, something we've kind of heard of. How many of us have practiced Lent before? A few, okay, okay. So Lent, just to give us some background, beginning with Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, we did not have an Ash Wednesday service. And if I'm honest, it's because I'm still learning about it. Uh, and so I didn't feel comfortable starting, uh, just because I like to make sure I'm informed before I myself partake, but then also uh, lead people in that endeavor. But Ash Wednesday is a day, according to church history, where we focus on humility, simplicity, our mortality as humans, and our moral culpability as sinners. So the dust and the ashes that they utilize on Ash Wednesday and that they you know, rub on a face represent these two themes of the season, our finite nature and our sinful nature. It's meant to allow us to spend the 40 days roughly uh, dwelling in that, but at the same time looking forward to Holy Week, to Eastertide. And so, while it may be um, grouped in with Roman Catholicism, uh, much of the global church actually practices Lent and in particular, Ash Wednesday as well. It's a practice that goes all the way back to the second century, uh, before there was a Roman Catholic church. And uh, then it started as just a couple days, but by the fourth century, by the early 300s in Nicaea, it became an adopted practice that was roughly 40 days. So uh, regarding Ash Wednesday, Bobby Gross in his book, Living the Christian Year writes, by fasting on this day, Conscious of our human sinfulness and finitude, we set a tone for Lent as a season of humility and self-examination. We continue to follow the life of Jesus, remembering his temptation in the wilderness and his journey toward Jerusalem to undergo suffering and death. We consider what it means to quote-unquote deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Palm, or Passion Sunday, begins the final week of Lent, or the beginning of Holy Week during which we contemplate the last days of Jesus' life with increasing intensity. And so while this may seem like a dreary sort of practice that the church has utilized, uh, our church ancestors for generations now have utilized this annually, this journey. And there is a glimmer of hope in the darkness in this. So just as there was hope that Jesus would eventually overcome in the passage this morning today, the, the temptations that he endures from the Satan, we too have hope. So while we are reminded and kind of focusing on stewing in our ineptitude and our depravity apart from God, we are also reminded that he did endure the cross and secured our redemption through his resurrection from the grave. And Bobby Gross concludes it this way, summarizing the Lent season. We are like prisoners whose release draws near, or refugees on our way back home, 
or patience for whom the cure is working. Lent is sobering, but it leads to Easter. So it's this annual practice. In the Christian calendar, there's three cycles. Uh, the cycle of light, which we just finished. It goes from, uh, oh my gosh, Advent until this last week. Now we're in what's called the cycle of life, um, and that is now the life of Christ. So we're focusing on that typically annually in the Christian calendar. All the way up to post-Easter, which then you get into what's called Eastertide, post-Easter. And it's leading to uh, the Pentecost Sunday, and that's called the cycle of life. Uh, the life that it, or the cycle of love, the love of Christ carried out through the church. And that's kind of how the rhythm of the annual calendar for the Christian uh, church has looked. But so in today's gospel passage, Luke records an account of Jesus being led by the Spirit to the desert. So we're going to look at Luke 4, starting in verse 1. While there, he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by the Satan. And there are a couple of key details for us to be aware of before we approach this passage. One, uh, it's unclear whether or not in this passage this is like Satan in the flesh right there uh, with Jesus and like leading him around and stuff, or whether it's Satan communicating him with, in similar manners that maybe a, a demon or Satan might communicate with us in this day, through a whisper of the ear, through signs, through symbols, things of that sort. Uh, virtually no commentator makes a, a, a ventures a claim on whether or not it's a physical manifestation of Satan, a person, or if it's Satan working in and through uh, surroundings and speaking through to Jesus' spirit. Second, uh, it's important for us to notice and own these things. Luke's ordering of the temptations is different than Matthew, and uh, the church can often get critiqued by this, that when there are some discrepancies within the gospel, and what do we do within the different accounts of Jesus' life, and what do we do with them? Um, again, there really is not necessarily a clear reason as to why, but it doesn't discredit the scenario, the story. Uh, when we read these writings, we have to be careful not to read history as the way us postmodern 21st century people read history. That every detail, it, the purpose of history and the way, the manner in which they recorded it could be different sometimes. And so Luke and Matthew often move things in different orders, but for literary reasons, for the sake of telling their greater story, the themes. That doesn't discredit how they happened or the order, uh, it's just how pre-modern people did history. And it's the same thing with literary devices and things of that sort. Even myth means something to them in the ancient Near East than it does to us. So when we read scripture, we have to be careful not to impose our postmodern 21st century view of how to read things. That man, when a newspaper or when an article says this happened, that's how it happened. That's how we view history. That's how we view accounts of things. Back then, it's a little more complex than that. And so we have to be careful not to impose that on them. If you're interested in learning more about that and how to read the Bible, in our day and age, there's a great book I've recommended, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I encourage you to check that out. And then the last thing we should own, the story is unique because it's one of the few stories that Jesus would have had to tell. 
Uh, it's kind of weird. There's no one else here that could have passed this story on. Jesus must have told this story to other people. It's kind of a fun little fact, but that's an interesting fun little fact. So as we walk through this passage, we're going to look at three components of the temptations that Jesus faced. The strategy of temptation, the allure of temptation, and the conqueror of temptation. So let's look at the strategy. Starting in verse 1, Jesus has just been affirmed prior to this in Luke's account of his sonship in God. God has spoken down. The Spirit has descended on Jesus. God said, this is my son in whom I am pleased. There is no doubt that he is the son of God. And then Jesus is encountering the question now of what kind of Messiah he will be. Let's read, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. So notice that Jesus is alone. Notice that he is in the wilderness, that he is famished, and ultimately he is vulnerable. Jesus is vulnerable. So the first component of the strategy that is being used here for temptation is that there's this vulnerability through isolation and through a hunger, through an appetite that is not being temporarily fulfilled by bodily uh, uh, or physical things like bread. And so we look at the three temptations now, starting in verse 3. The devil says to him, If you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answers him, It's written, one does not live by bread alone. Look at the second temptation. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all his authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. But Jesus answers him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then look at the last temptation. The devil took him to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answers him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's Satan's strategy here? He's quoting Scripture, but he's misusing it. He's stating truths. He knows Scripture, but he is misusing it. The second component of of Satan of the strategy of temptation, it's this twisting of truth to serve one's own purpose. There's a word in the Old Testament. There's three different words in the Old Testament for sin: uh, sin, uh, transgression, and iniquity. And sometimes we think, oh, they're just synonyms. No, they're actually different things. Uh, And so the word in Hebrew is ava. It's one of the three main words in the Old Testament for sin. It literally translates as iniquity. Timothy Keller writes. That just as when a bone is dislocated from its socket, it causes great pain and damage, so a heart not centered on God is filled with deeply distorted beliefs, 
self-views, God-views, world-views, and drives inordinate, enslaving, and misplaced desires. Iniquity means to be twisted out of shape. So it is a good thing. You can still kind of see the good in it, but it is twisted. It is different. You see the elements of glory, but yet, um, yes, it has been twisted. It has been distorted. And generation after generation, from the beginning of the early church, we've seen the scriptures be weaponized, right? We've seen it in, in the church even today with health, wealth, and prosperity gospels. There's a lot of televangelists that preach you a lot of interesting things, and it sounds good. They're, they're preaching scripture to you, but it is mishandling the scriptures often. That's why the warning is often uh, in, the, in the late New Testament writings to the early church and to the early church leaders is to help the early church so they are not led away by people who preach to their stomachs, to their appetites, to what they want, misusing the truth of God's word. And then history bears witness to the realities of this practice too, right? I mean, the Crusades uh, were, were a misuse of scripture, right? Uh, the founding even of our earthly nation, the slave trade, Nazi Germany, the church getting into bed with politicians on both the right and the left for the sake of legislating, whether it be Christian values or Christian justice, despite the character of said people that they're getting in bed with, these are ways that we twist and manipulate God's word to justify our actions. While masked as affirming one's ways as in line with the cause of Christ, these are ways that are utterly opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you religious people, you godly people on the outside, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may be clean. Thomas Merton, wrote that the greatest temptations are not those that solicit our consent to obvious sin, but those that offer us great evils, masking as the greatest goods. Those that offer us great evils, masking as the greatest goods. Notice that the strategy here in the twisting of God's word is, man, it sounds good. It sounds right. They're quoting scripture. Sometimes we look to that with our friends or loved ones or politicians or leaders or things of that sort where it's, man, they're quoting scripture. They must be Christian. Man, Satan quoted it. <laughs> Careful. That's not your qualification, right? They must be seeking to honor God. Satan quoted it. He may say he's seeking to honor God. Satan did that. There's more to the metrics of what a Jesus follower is and what a God-honoring way to live life looks like. These are the key components of temptation strategy. Vulnerability through isolation and hunger and twisting truth to serve one's own purpose. And so as Thomas Merton introduced, let's look at the allure of temptation, the promise of temptation. There is an allure here that we see. There's a promise of beauty Meaning, purpose, satisfaction. Let's look at Jesus' temptations again in verse 3. It wouldn't be tempting 
If it were not so, that man, it sounds good, right? It sounds good. Why do you think, I mean, it, it literally is the uh, infomercial promise, right? Or the um, 99 cent store promise, or the it's on sale. The thing I, I'm often reminded of, man, if it sounds too good to be true, what is it? It's too good to be true. So when we look at Jesus, looking at verse 3, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. So what's the allure? Jesus is starving, right? He's hungry. He's fasting for 40 days. Who knows at what point, maybe these all happened at the end of the 40 days or within it, but still, either, either way, if I don't eat within a few hours, I'm hungry. I can only imagine a couple days, let alone 40, and Jesus has promised this, yeah, it's a good thing to eat, right? It's a good thing. God gave us food. God gave us these healthy appetites. He's not doing anything wrong by feeding himself. He can do this. Why not? So Jesus responds, one does not live on bread alone. Countering with the truth of God's word. Again, in verse 5, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. The devil says to him, I will give you glory and all authority, for it's been given to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Again, what's the promise here? The kingdom. Kingdom of the world. Now, is that a bad thing? Is that a wrong thing? I mean, Jesus is king, right? So what's the problem? What's the problem with Jesus taking his throne? Why not? Jesus again responds with the truth of God's word. And then in verse 9, again, with the third temptation, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, saying, test God. Throw yourself down from here. The scriptures say that Jesus, that the angels will protect you. Prove yourself. Prove, have God prove himself. But again, Jesus rebuts with, or rebuttals with the truth of God's word. Commentator Leon Morris, one of the Luke commentators, he writes, this means that Jesus saw the possibility of setting up a kingdom that would be mightier far than that of the Romans. It's not difficult to see how such a vision might be regarded as a legitimate aim. It would mean government concerned with the genuine welfare of the people and the way would be open for much good. Essentially, Leon Morris is saying Jesus is offered the opportunity to legislate Christian values and ethics. So the question begs, what's the problem? And Leon Morris continues on this passage, but it would mean compromise for God's son. It meant using the world's methods. It meant casting out devils by Beelzebub, which is, he's quoting Jesus here. His kingdom was of a very different kind. That meant the lowly path, not the earthly glory. It meant the cross, not the crown, or the presidency, or the supreme court. To look for earthly sovereignty was to worship wickedness, and Jesus decisively renounced it. 
T.S. Eliot uh, wrote, he, he says of the last temptation, but he's, he's quoting Matthew, which it's actually the, the second temptation in Luke's passage. But he says, the last temptation is the greatest, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. To do the right deed for the wrong reason. And Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary, he writes, the kingdom was going to belong to him anyways. So what did it matter how it came into his hands? Why not just end it right there, right? Jesus, take the kingdom right there. Take the throne right there. But Jesus avoids this kind of end justifies the means thinking as he responds to these undermining proposals of Satan. We must be careful that the shortcuts that often become possible in life do not, in fact, reflect rationalization to avoid God's will. To be contrary to the way of Jesus, the character of God. I've highlighted how in, in the church, and then in even the church, in world history, how the church has become married and oft throughout generation to generation, starting with, with the Roman government, and it manifests in many different ways throughout many different nations throughout history, and it will continue on until Jesus' kingdom is fully realized. That this grasp for earthly power, for the crown instead of the cross, will be on the menu for us. But the way of Jesus, our king, did not order that. He did not take that up. He took the cross instead of the crown. It was through the cross that the crown was obtained. It was disregarding that Roman country being built, that he could have been king of Rome right there, that truly his kingdom is now his and coming. What about us? What do we do? This is kind of big up in the sky, but how do we justify our sins, our temptations? What do we deal with? What do we encounter and flirt with and engage? What knocks on the doors of our hearts and minds on a practical individual level? Sure, I mean, that what, I, what I spoke in regards to our involvement in public policy and things of that sort uh, does involve us in particular because we today live in a democracy, but at this time they didn't. And so we have the opportunity to engage or not engage. Anabaptists typically have not engaged. But so what is our part even outside of those types of matters, outside of those conversations, more in our home life, in our work life? And perhaps it's maybe at our jobs. We have the opportunity to cut corners. We have the opportunity to move up to increase our earnings, but it means sacrificing something on the altar of more, quote unquote, success. Perhaps it's not doing something wrong, but is it questionable? Man, how easy it is for me to justify doing something because Jesus didn't outright say that's wrong. But that's not the question usually, what is right and wrong. The question is what is loving, God-honoring, loving of God and loving of our neighbor. What is just, what is good, what is right. 
Oscar Wilde, he's a 19th century poet and playwright, he wrote of temptation, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul grows sick with longings for the things it has forbidden to itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. I can resist everything but temptation itself. For those of us who have realized addictions in our lives, and as I read that, it's like, yeah, that, that sounds how it feels at times. And if we're honest with ourselves, all sin has tendencies, shadows of addiction. It has elements of it, overlaps with it. Perhaps we're, the spirit has not even made us aware of it, or perhaps our culture deems that addiction is socially okay. Hence, Starbucks coffee. Um, caffeine is a socially acceptable drug, correct? But it is a drug. C.S. Lewis countered this worldview. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current in that of good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little, but little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. That leads us to our final focus of today, the conqueror of temptation. The author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 4, verse 14, encouraging his, God's people, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses with our temptations, with our struggles, with our addictions, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet is without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This reminds me, the, the illustration that came to mind for me when I read this passage is how often my little one comes to me after she tries for a few minutes to do something. She thinks she's got it, and there's no way she's going to get it, whatever it is she's working on um, sometimes. And, uh, and then she finally comes to air in her eye and asks for help. And that's kind of how it seems like we live our life being stubborn, saying, I've got this. 
I can do this on my own. I can resist on my own. I can live the good life on my own. I can be a decent person on my own, person on my own. But how does Jesus do it? How does Jesus conquer temptation? Well, we saw three times that he quotes the truth of God's word. Three times he quotes scripture right back at the Satan. He fills in the picture that the Satan is painting. Because he's throwing out truths. He's throwing out half-truths, but it's not the full picture. And Jesus is filling in, yeah, that is true, but also this is true. Yeah, that's true, but this has to line up with this. It's part of developing a Christian worldview and knowing our Father more, knowing who we are in God more as we begin to follow Jesus. So how do we conquer temptation? Uh, We don't look to ourselves, but to Jesus. That's what this Hebrews 4 passage points us to. That's what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus looked to God. Looked to the truth of Scripture. And so we look to Jesus. We see that He is the true conqueror of our sin. Notice that this is being painted as the new beginning of the new creation. Jesus is the greater Adam. The greater Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were tempted in a garden. Jesus, because they were thrown out, endures being tempted in a desert. Notice that Adam and Eve were tempted together. They weren't alone. And yet they failed. Jesus was tempted by Himself. Adam and Eve were tempted to become like God, but apart from God. Jesus knows and quotes the truth of Scripture that true life only is found in God. Adam and Eve are are offered the opportunity to find purpose apart from God. Jesus knows that purpose is only found in God. Adam and Eve gave in to their temptation. Jesus resisted. Adam and Eve were therefore disqualified from their mission of being image bearers, being a blessing to all the earth through imaging God. But since Jesus endured, He remained qualified for the mission that God had for Him. And so that's why Lent in particular, this season, the church has adopted as a way of marking that new beginning of new creation. That from here, Jesus, annually, we are reminiscing and leading to a final celebration of that beginning of new creation. And it started here that Jesus from the beginning is rewriting our story in his story. No longer are we to be found in Adam and Eve. No longer is our identity in such. Now it's in the new Adam. No longer is it found in the garden. But it's actually found in the desert place but will eventually again culminate in a garden city. Bobby Gross, again, just with regards to the Lent season, wrote of Jesus' temptations here that he endured. He says, physical comfort, public acclaim, political power. These are the things that Jesus is tempted with here. If he is indeed the Son of God, why not exempt himself from the suffering or exercise his prerogatives or claim his rightful position? 
that these would have been the right things gained by the wrong means. I wish you could see this, but each word he's going to say twice. One is lowercase, one is uppercase. He says lowercase bread apart from uppercase bread. Glory separate from glory. Power independent of power. Or to put it in Genesis 3 terms, God-likeness apart from God. But, unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus says no to the tempter and yes to the Father. No to self, yes to sacrifice. No to doubt, yes to faith. No to empires, yes to kingdom. No to idolatry, yes to obedience. So as we try and think through and reflect on how this applies to us, this temptation of Jesus, what this does for us today, here, now, this week, this season of Lent approaching Holy Week. N.T. Wright writes, the Christian discipline of fighting temptation is not about self-hatred or rejecting parts of our God-given humanity. That is how the world paints it. And this is how I was made. This is who I am. More and more, the lines get blurred on morality of what we're becoming socially acceptable, uh, socially okay with. What's wrong with this? But no, N.T. Wright continues, it's about celebrating God's gift of full humanity and, I love this illustration, like some learning a musical instrument, discovering how to tune it and play it to its best possibility. At the heart of our resistance to temptation is love and loyalty to the God who has already called us his beloved children in Christ and who holds out before us the calling to follow him in the path which leads to the true glory. In that glory lies the true happiness, the true fulfillment, which neither world nor flesh nor devil can begin to imitate. Similar to the illustration that I've used for a, a back that needs a chiropractor and that our lives are being reoriented into the way of Jesus as we follow him for the rest of our lives. I love the illustration of our lives being an untuned, a really poor, think of that, that guitar that you've had in your attic, or we don't have attics here, huh? basements, um, or that instrument that your family member had and you finally pull it out and you, and you play it and man, it's way out of tune. It might need new strings, but to tune it back to get it to that beautiful C chord, that beautiful G chord, and even those old rusty strings on a guitar, while they may sound awful, you start hearing again in harmony, in melody, uh, in unison, these notes coming together, creating a beautiful harmonious chord. And similarly for us in the way of Jesus, following him in the resisting of and even conquering of our temptations, begins to tune the instrument of our souls, the instrument of our entire being, to, I'm forgetting the word, I want to say metronome, but to the perfect C, if you will, of God. And so for us, what is a practice from the way of Jesus as we enter into Lent? Well, 
the Lenten season is about fasting. It's one of the main practices that the church has used for nearly two millennia. Again, uh, if, if you're unfamiliar with what fasting is, Bobby Gross writes, Christian fasting is the voluntary denial of something for a specific period of time for a spiritual purpose. In this respect, fasting is much like Sabbath keeping, a restriction that creates space for God. And then an Anglican minister, Aaron Damiani, writes, let us also keep the fast so that our appetites may be reordered. Think again, being instrument, coming in tuned. Reordered, not destroyed. Fasting and celibacy carried out in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit affirm the human body in the story of redemption. It recalibrates the human appetite. So in, in living the Christian year, uh, Bobby Gross gives quite a few ideas for what fasting could look like. I'm going to encourage us to uh, prayerfully ask the Spirit uh, opportunities for us to fast in this season. Now, Jesus did the full-on bodily no eating. Uh, that's pretty intense, and I don't think we could actually do that. Traditionally, what the church has done is fasted from something for a, for a spiritual purpose, for the sake of creating space for God, for the sake of opening up for the Spirit to work in your lives, to speak in your lives. So a couple ideas Bobby Gross gave was, one, actual fasting. Um, now this could be like a daily thing, but it's like a meal a day type of thing, where you do it. And again, if you're doing the bodily type of fasting, be careful especially those of us who have physical needs or dietary needs, those sometimes are not always an option. Uh, but different other ideas, other different ideas are you know, fasting from TV or entertainment, fasting from caffeine, uh, alcohol, sweets, social media, uh, perhaps purchasing something. If you find yourself being addicted to buying something or eating out, um, perhaps it's uh, overusing of some of your resources. Maybe you don't need to drive everywhere. Maybe you can walk. Or maybe you can carpool. Man, there's things like that where it's, it's something that we're, it's causing us to rethink, to, to do something a little differently, but it's also opening up space to, in that time, feel the hunger a little bit more, feel the need a little bit more. And instead of relying on things like TV, caffeine, sweets, this, this, and that, to fulfill us, to get us by, to numb us even, that empty space allows us to hopefully seek God in that time. Now giving up uh, is not worthwhile if we don't leave it empty and prayerfully seek God to fill it, prayerfully ask him to fill it. The church has also customarily, if it, in this time, they call it almsgiving, so if and when we say we fast from something that, say it's I eat out twice a week or something like that and I, I fast from that, um, the encouragement is to take those funds and bless the poor in that time. And this is in model with one of the other lectionary passages that was today, Deuteronomy 26, and if I don't have time to get in there, but uh, the early verses there was the um, circle around the year of the tithes in uh, Old Testament history, so. But anyways, that's, that's a secondary option for fasting.
But so how about us? Is there something that we can voluntarily, you yourself can voluntarily, or your household can voluntarily deny yourselves of these next roughly five and a half weeks? We're starting late. We missed Wednesday. But it's okay. That in turn, it would create space for God in your life, space to hear from Him. Perhaps it's not sleeping in. Perhaps it's not binging on that TV late at night because then it, you're allowed to go to bed a little bit earlier and then wake up a little earlier and spend time with God. Or if you're like me, more fall asleep reading with God. That will create space for the Holy Spirit to recalibrate your appetites and desires. I'm going to invite the band up at this point. But as we conclude with a song, we're going to take just a short moment of silence to prayerfully ask the Spirit to bring to your attention something, a practice, a habit that has a grip on you. Something that we look to knowingly or unknowingly to fill a void that only God can fill. And yeah, sometimes it's those things that I said. Sometimes it's scrolling through social media. Sometimes it's caffeine. Sometimes it's addiction to spending or eating. Whatever it may be. Let's take a moment to ask the Spirit for that to help us see ways that we ourselves could partake in this historic practice of fasting during Lent. So, um, I'll just open it up for us. I'll just prayer, uh, pray, Holy Spirit lead us, and let's just take a few moments. And remember that it can even be good things. Notice that Jesus was tempted and fasted from good things things that are honoring to God, things that God gave us. Um, and so sometimes it might even be that we've partaking in or we're overdoing things that are good. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask in this time that you would give us something in our hearts and our minds. Speak to us. Help us see a way that we can forsake something, that we could put something before you, that we can give up something in, in solidarity and unity with you, identifying with you, Jesus, but also to see our dependence on you, that you would help us, not just in spirit, but in body and mind, be more dependent on you, less dependent on the things of this world. Speak to us, Spirit.
as we transition into a time of responsive musical worship, I encourage you to continue praying if you feel led. And even throughout this week, praying, asking God. And, this is, and, and even whether or not this is something you should partake in. I'm not a legalist. I'm not saying you got to do this. But at the same time, I encourage us to consider partaking in this. And then, as God leads, I encourage you to sing out. God's worthy of our praise. And those around us are encouraged by hearing uh, one another praise our Heavenly Father, for He is good. He alone is our source of life. He alone is the bread that we are to feast on. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.